Today's guest on My Climate Journey startup series is McGee Young, founder and CEO of Watt Carbon. Watt Carbon knows the hour-by-hour carbon intensity of the grid for every building in the USA, and it helps identify the real-time carbon savings of distributed energy resources, such as heat pumps and rooftop solar and storage, in commercial buildings. This empowers project developers to sell these carbon savings as building decarbonization credits to companies and organizations with net zero commitments, helping to accelerate the adoption of these more efficient technologies and to speed up the decarbonization of the built environment. McGee started his career as an associate professor of political science at Marquette University, where he studied the history of political action groups in America. This led him to learn more about environmental movements, and as part of his classes, he started having his students hack their way into political action by pulling publicly available data, making sense of it, and publishing their findings. This led McGee down an entrepreneurial journey that eventually saw him leave academia and go all in on a climate tech career. Rather than me spoil more of his story, though, let's hear it directly from him. But first, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, McGee, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cody. It's great to be here. So, McGee, I want to hear all about your backstory and how you became a clean energy climate tech entrepreneur, because, you know, I know a little bit about it, but when I was looking at your LinkedIn prior to today's conversation and scrolled down and saw your time as associate professor of political science at Marquette, and the only entry you have underneath that is the word hell. So I'm going to leave it there and let you do some talking. <laughs> yeah, I might be, you know, sort of an OG, uh, my climate journey person before it was a thing. I went straight from undergrad to graduate school. I graduated from college a long time ago, right around the same time you did, I bet, where we we had gotten the internet, the NCSA Mosaic browser in our computer lab, I think somewhere around sophomore, junior year. And I was captivated by it. And my roommate and I actually tried to start a, a business where we would provide internet access at the airport, which was next door to our college. And we were gonna string over like an ethernet cable across the way to pro. And everybody said, what a dumb idea. Nobody would ever wanna use the internet while they're waiting for a plane when there's a bookstore right there where they could just go pick up a newspaper for 25 cents. That's a terrible business idea. And so I had kind of this inkling of, this is the kind of thing that I'm really excited about, but no idea how to actually put that into practice. So I did the safe thing, which was to go get a PhD. And I don't know if that was actually a safe thing or not, but it was the thing that I did. And I wound up going through, you know, a grad program, got a job at Marquette University and and loved it. You know, like at least a lot of it. Being an academic is fantastic in a lot of ways. There's elements of it, though, that are really challenging. And I think higher education itself has, you know, struggled to kind of reinvent itself in the last decade or so. And as you get promoted, I got tenure, you end up serving a lot of middle management functions. So you're on different kinds of university committees, and it kind of lost a little bit of that, you know, the excitement and newness of it all, which was something that I was craving. And so I started looking at, you know, other things that I was interested in. And as a university professor, your options are somewhat limited in that regard, but but I was able to, to be creative and you know, my research had been on political entrepreneurs. So I was really interested in how the environmental movement in the United States kind of evolved over the years from the early days with John Muir to the Sierra Club in the 50s and 60s under David Brower to the more recent NRDC and some of the more recent organizations and how political entrepreneurs kind of catalyzed changes in the way policies were contested in the United States. And so it was sort of a natural connection between political entrepreneurship and what we were building at Marquette, which was a social entrepreneurship program. And so as that started to come about, I got more and more involved in that and felt like that was where my, my heart was. 
I have to interrupt you. I didn't realize that was your background, you know, sort of topic area. Are there any books you want to recommend for folks who are listening, you know, really kind of charting that are a good fun read charting the history of the environmental movement in America? Well, you should read my book. Okay. <laughs> What's your book? It's called Developing Interest, Organizational Change in the Politics of Advocacy. It's a mouthful. But honestly, you know, the book that I read that really kind of shaped my world was a, a book by a guy named Ted Shavikoff, I think is how you pronounce his last name. And it was on the history of the environmental movement in, in the U.S. And it's such a rich and fascinating history. You know, the Sierra Club was founded in the Bay Area, and they were mostly Republicans. In the early part of the century, it was the Republicans who were in the Teddy Roosevelt kind of genre of, hey, we need to preserve these wild for their own sake. And it was, you know, kind of upper middle class. You know, these were the progressives in California, the patricians. And it was only much later on that it became associated with kind of the social movements of the 60s and the kind of more activist side. So for anybody who's kind of encountering this transition themselves, I would highly recommend just going back and you can't really go wrong. You can look at, you know, read Silent Spring by Rachel Carson or read some of the original writings of John Muir from his time spent in the Sierras. All of it is captivating and it really brings to life a lot of the reasons why we do the work that we do today. Well, interestingly, I mean, even the climate movement today feels like has its origins in protectionism and is moving more into sort of capitalistic entrepreneurial based solutions. You know, even the Inflation Reduction Act is all around tax credits for entrepreneurial solutions, not necessarily about protections. So interesting to see history kind of repeat itself. I was a history major myself in college, so for what it's worth. I think it's environmentalism 3.0. The first wave was very much, you know, the Isaac Walton League and the Sierra Club were going to protect and preserve these natural lands. And then the second wave was the rise of the nonprofit, the sort of clickbait environmentalism, where it's very much about having as much controversy as possible and saying, wait, you're going to put a dam on the Grand Canyon? Like what? You're going to kill the whales? Like what? And now we have this kind of new concept emerging around actually how can we kind of harness some of our ingenuity and innovation to create a better world for ourselves, right? It's very much, much more future oriented, I think, now than it has ever been. And I think it's a pretty exciting new phase. Maybe there's a future academic study for you to do there, McGee. Ah, man. Yeah. <laughs> we'll solve one problem at a time. I love it. Well, you're too busy building a business. So we'll let other people study the successes of your labors, I suppose. That's right. So thanks for that slight detour. And I bet we could have a conversation about the changing movements in American attitudes toward the environment, I guess you could call it broadly. We could probably do a whole pod episode on that, which I would actually would love to do sometime. But for now, I want to make sure we cover what you're building with Watt Carbon. And so, so kind of you were maybe mentally finishing up your time doing this professor gig. And it seems like you started to go down some entrepreneurial pathways while you were teaching. So maybe walk us through what that looked like. Yeah, I started to realize that there's this concept of experiential learning that I found a much more interesting way of teaching American politics courses than just sort of out of a textbook. And I had a lot of latitude in my, as a professor, to do kind of whatever I wanted. So I set about challenging my students in my classes to actually like start projects. And projects became, one class we built a website called greenvoting.org, where we were trying to crowdsource how politicians stood on various issues and then we did another one called Water Score, which we figured out we could do public records requests of water utility records all across the United States and make a software platform that would allow anybody to type in their address and get their water utility records, which was like crazy and shut down immediately by the powers that be across these water districts because you know they realized that all of their information was basically public. But this kind of notion that you could really empower people through technology, and that turned into actually like sort of intentionally starting companies within classes. These were undergrads or grad students? Mostly undergrads, yeah. Undergrads, cool. Uh -huh. Were they building software as part of this to build these businesses? 
Well, a lot of it was, you know, kind of like WYSIWYG software where you, it's not real software, of course, but it's sort of like blogs and other kinds of content that was accessible to a student who didn't have a technical Taking background. data that is there, but no one's bothered to like do anything with it because it's sitting on some government website and is not formatted well and actually taking it, running it through an Excel table or a Google sheet or something, and then creating more public awareness of the results by blogging it or putting it on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever you were using at the time. Is, is that, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Wow, that's so cool. One year at the end of the semester, the local chamber of commerce or somebody was putting on a hackathon. And so I took some students down there. I said, hey, you know, instead of a final, if you want to do this hackathon over the weekend, like I'd give you, you know, credit for that as, instead of like the final project. And so we met somebody who showed up at the hackathon who's just lived in Milwaukee and said, oh my God, I'd love to work on something like this. And he was a software engineer. And so we kind of built something. And then the Milwaukee Water Council, which was this kind of civic, you know, trade association trying to build water technology capacity within the city of Milwaukee said, hey, you know, you should apply to our new accelerator that we are standing up and brew, right? The brew accelerator. The yeah, brew, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just met with those folks a week or two ago. Yeah. yeah, so Dean Amhouse. You know. mm -hmm. Oh, it's because you were at Marquette in Wisconsin, right? Yeah, you were right there. Okay, right. awesome. We, so H2O Score was in the first batch of brew accelerator companies 10 years ago at this point. And so from that point on, I just kind of never looked back. I tried to do both at the same time for a couple of years and realized that it's way too hard to start a company when you have a side job. And once I got tenure, I said... I'd actually rather just be working on company stuff and not continue with my job. And so I went to my university president and I said, I'd like to retire, please. And he goes, I don't think you can. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess I just quit then. So, and that was that. Wow. Oh man. And so I have a lot of questions about that and I could spoiler alert Watt Carbon a little bit by saying that you kind of took a lot of those same principles you were doing with your students of exposing data that's there, but no one's really like fully accessing and like building businesses or building exposure around it. Like that's the kind of the core of your current company. Is it not? I've only ever had one idea, Cody. So <laughs> yeah, you basically kind of work around that kind of core thing that you're interested in. And I think that's kind of what doing a startup is, is right. It's like, you're going after this thing that you have an idea about, but you don't exactly know how to crack it. And you want to do it over and over again until you like really get at the core of it. And then I think at that point, you can do something hopefully pretty special. I want to get there. But before we do, how did you go from A to B? So you say I quit and the dean or whomever looks at you and sort of says, okay, and then what? <laughs> You know, you don't get this back, right? There's like, yeah. you know, let's give it up, you're, you're done. And they just didn't know how to even handle it. So my wife, bless her heart, and our two little kids, we moved out here to the Bay Area. And I had a second company at the time called Meter Hero. And funny story was I sort of got a little bit too clever for my own good. And I had taken sabbatical to work on that and then, and then went and quit. And they said, no, 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 no. If you take sabbatical, you have to work for another year or you have to pay us back for your sabbatical. And so I ended up commuting from San Francisco to Milwaukee for a year every week wow. to teach classes and then to come back here and work on that company again. They let you own the company. The company was yours? Yeah, so that part was, although they were changing the rules, this is part of the reason why I actually was decided to leave was that they had said, there's no such thing anymore. There's no such concept in your contract as your own time. So anything you do, even if it's like nights and weekends, belongs to us as the university. And I found that deeply problematic and said, well, okay, how about I quit? I'm not ever going to sign that. And so that was part of pushing me out the door. So yeah, so we ran Meter Hero for a couple of years. It ended up not being, you know, it's one of those things where it's a good idea, but it doesn't quite hit all of the, the things. This is the idea want. that if you live more efficiently, you somehow, you found people, organizations, whatever, that would basically reward you for saving energy or water off of your meter? Exactly. Yeah. So like, again, a lot of the same concepts, right? If you can reduce your water and energy use, there are companies out there who have strong ESG goals that would love to use that as a way to kind of communicate their own commitment to ESG to help to reward you. And the frictions there were things around, you know, access to data, 
you know, we were doing this, you know, 10 years ago. So a lot of the things that we take for granted to now, like smart meters, and even the concept of measurement and verification was new to me. So I was sort of making up some really like lame ways of calculating energy savings and water savings because I didn't know any better. So the whole thing was just, you know, it was like too early in a lot of ways, both from a technical standpoint, as well as my own ability to comprehend like how one would do this successfully. I think you have to fail at stuff a bunch to really understand like how to hopefully be successful with it. So what I love about that project though, and that company was that I had a grad student who had worked on it with me all the way back to the first company to H2O score. And he asked, you know, when I was, as I was shutting it down, if he could, he had kind of like built some educational software around it. And he called it STEM Hero. And the idea was that you could take high school, middle school students and teach them some basic concepts of data science by having them track their water and energy use in their, in their homes. And he's built that as a company that still exists today that works with kids all over the country and high school science teachers with a curriculum that helps them learn kind of the basics of like data science through tracking their own water and energy use in their homes and remarkably uncovers all sorts of problems, right? Like leaky toilets and and like the whole thing. And so it's really rewarding to see even where you don't have your own personal success, where you think like, okay, that company didn't succeed for me. It was a pathway to success for somebody else who's done, you know, quite well with it. So it's, it's sort of that a nice moral to the story or whatever is that there's always some outlet out there for a good idea that maybe you aren't the right person to be executing on that idea, but somebody else might be able to take it and be quite successful. I can tell you how many times, you know, I'm walking my dogs or whatever, and I see a neighbor who has a sprinkler head that's just broken and like, you know, their timer's going off, they're not home or whatever. It's the water shooting straight up in the air like a geyser. And you wonder how long that's been happening. And certainly they're going to feel that in their water bill, right? Totally. totally. And it's empowering for kids to be able to go home to their parents and say, hey, I can save us money on our bills. Like, that's a really nice thing. So you did this and then you moved into, I guess you you went and kind of took a gig somewhere at, at Open Energy Efficiency, right? So you actually said, okay, I'm going to, I am now, you know, a tech person. I'm going to go join a tech company. That's right. I had met Matt Golden while I was doing Meter Hero, and he said, you know, you're doing measurement and verification wrong. And I said, I know. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I'm like, That's, you're absolutely right. So I love challenges like that, right, where you have no idea how to do something. There's a right way of doing it, and, and you get a chance to just kind of dive deep into that. And at Open Energy Efficiency, we were thinking about a lot of the same issues, right? How can you create markets around, in that case, energy efficiency savings. And and one of the big challenges that we faced personally was that there's a thousand ways of making these calculations and they're all kind of right in some way. But a market doesn't work very well if everybody's making their own calculation. So can you standardize that in some way? And, and so I spent you know five years there building a protocol called Caltrack, an open source software that we call the OpenEE meter that standardized a methodology for calculating energy savings, and then developed a new methodology for using smart meter data to calculate energy savings on an hourly basis. So what had been a calculation that was an annual number, right, you might say a thousand kilowatt hours this year, could now be made at an hourly granular level. So we know that you save six kilowatt hours at two o'clock. And that has real importance for thinking about buildings as grid assets. So as we think about, you know, there are times a day in which the grid is really stressed when we have to use particularly polluting power plants, for example, to supply power. If we could target our energy efficiency savings to those times of the day would be much more valuable than saving energy when the grid's pretty clean or where there's low demand on the grid. And that was really kind of revolutionary for me and for the way that I thought about this problem space. And it was, it actually kind of transformed a lot of what we do in California generally as a state to try to harness demand side energy resources in pursuit of our broader decarbonization policies. So I think that was a really kind of important five years in my life to kind of level up my own understanding of how to go about solving some of these core problems. And you joined as head of product and kind of, I think, moved into a CTO role at that company, right? So you were helping to lay out the architecture of how to solve these problems, not just 
you know, sort of saying, hey, we should go solve these problems? Yeah, probably the worst qualified CTO this side of, you know, <laughs> I don't know where, but it's interesting because as a, with a political science background, you know, a lot of the methodologies that we use are, are regression analysis, right? So statisticals analysis. And, and that's what I had some training in. And a lot of it is policy, right? So you have this kind of interesting intersection of stats, of software, and of policy that really felt like a comfort zone for me. And certainly was an amazing body of work that collectively we were able to deliver during my time at Recurve. And, and they're you know, still doing quite well with and so then somewhere along the way, you had this insight that, hey, if this is an energy problem, it's also a carbon problem. And so not only can you or should you track what your energy consumption looks like on an hourly basis, but you could also track the emissions from the grid that you're pulling from on basically a near real-time basis, which I believe was the the nugget of insight that led to Watt Carbon. Is that is that a correct mental leap I'm making here? And and if so, maybe then explain what what carbon is. Yeah, definitely that's a huge part of it. But I think it is, it's even more sort of fundamental is that I'm an early adopter. Like I have solar panels, a battery, two EVs, a heat pump, like insulation. I've done all of the things, right? And I had this question of like, how am I doing? <laughs> you know, like. We want to know, right? Like we put all this work into trying to decarbonize and try to do the right thing. Like, and at a certain level, and I subscribe to my deep green CCA plan for, you know, like 100% renewable energy. So I had like checked all of the boxes, but there was something still at the end of the day that I felt I was being untrue about. And, and it went back to the work that we were doing at Recurve where we would identify the time of day in which the grid was, you know, the energy cost was highest. We didn't touch this, but open energy efficiency became Recurve, oh, right? Became, Same company. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Same yeah, company. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we rebranded there along the way. In California, there's a credit that you get for reducing your energy use that's attributable to greenhouse. So you get a greenhouse gas emission reduction credit. That's the same amount every hour of the day. And it struck me that that was, you know, like false, <laughs> that if I'm saving energy in, like right now when it's perfectly sunny out, that's going to have a different GHG impact, less, in fact, of a GHG impact than if I save energy like later tonight or, or overnight. And that also is really different depending on where you are in the country, right? So California, clean during the day, less so at night. Texas, you got a lot of wind, right? And so Texas, you actually have a lot of clean energy at, at night and a lot of natural gas, I think, powering during the day in many cases. And my PG&E bill, you know, gave me the cheapest energy in the middle of the night. And I was paying double that during the middle of the day, even though presumably the grid was a lot cleaner during the middle of the day. That's when I should be incentivized to use energy. And on an annual basis, it looked like I was net zero because I kind of produced more with my solar panels than I use in general. And But I knew that that was just, I was sort of lying to myself, right? Because my solar panels are overproducing in the middle of the day when the grid's clean. Yeah, even net meter in California is a 24 hour look back, right? It's not an hour by hour look back, is that correct? You get it on an hour by hour basis. Yeah, so they'll tell you each hour of the day, and so I know for a fact that my electricity overproduction. Happened. Oh, I see. You get it for the electricity side, but no one's accounting for it on the carbon side. On the carbon side, right. And so the carbon looks like an annual number still. It's like, what's the carbon emissions average for California? And what's your total energy for the year? So I started looking at this, and this is how most corporations report their carbon emissions is this annual number. And this is how the state of California kind of thinks about its carbon emissions. And, and, and if this is the most important thing, right, think about it this way. If we decarbonize buildings, we eliminate 40% of annual GHG emissions. That's enough to get us to the goals of the Paris Accords, right? That's massive, right? But we're doing that without any real visibility into whether or not the actions that we're taking are working or not. So just like in energy efficiency, where we had been doing these sort of annual numbers, and then we switched to hourly, with carbon, we've been doing annual numbers. But as soon as we switch to hourly, it totally changes the tools that we have available to us to actually make a difference with our buildings. Hey, everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, 
which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. So I'm going to put this in startup accounting language. Let's say you're running a business and you've got a negative burn rate and you have X amount of cash in the bank and you know that by October, you've got a bunch of contracts that are going to hit. You've got a bunch of accounts receivable that's going to come in and you're going to get a bunch of cash, right, coming in in October. And so you look at your annual budget for 2023 and at the bottom, you've got an excess of $300,000 cash in the bank and you're going, woohoo. But what you didn't know was if you would have looked at it on a monthly basis in May, you went cash negative, your bank accounts went negative and you're out of business because you can't make payroll. And like, that's what I'm hearing you say in terms of how we're thinking about carbon accounting today. Another example is when you're looking at a company to invest in, you ask them for their financials. Right, and you're expecting something like a PL. If they gave you their annual bank account balance and said, aha, here's our performance for the last three years. Two years ago, we had 300,000 in the bank. Last year, we had 400,000 in the bank. And this year, we have 500,000 in the bank. Like, so we're growing, right? Or like, it doesn't tell you anything. We don't know what's driving that. And that's the problem. It's like, we don't know what's actually driving our carbon emissions if we're looking at it at that gross level. Yep. Makes sense. So what did you decide to do about it? (laughs) Well, same playbook as I've had for the last 10 years. (laughs) Because it's not that complicated, right? We know what we need to do to decarbonize buildings. It's 24-7 carbon-free energy on every grid. It's electrifying all of our loads. And it's a grid-connected smart device in every building. So how do we get there? The first thing we need is visibility into what's actually happening. So that means, you know, that sort of hourly-level carbon accounting for every building, every grid, at least across the United States, but obviously we need to do this globally too, is kind of table stakes for being able to do this effectively. That means joining building level data, right, meter data with grid level carbon emissions data. That's not a natural join. So there's kind of different data sets that you might plug into. Fortunately, and this was kind of a lucky break for us, that the US government, the EIA, the Energy Information Agency, has made it a point to publish the hourly carbon emissions intensity for every grid in the United States on a daily basis. So you can actually go anywhere in the country. Now, there's a bunch of work to do because those are Excel spreadsheet files that get updated daily. You have to do lat long matching to find the address from your building to the right grid that it belongs to and a few other things. Mickey, I love that you've just like the Google Maps mashup business is like your playbook and it just you keep doing it. It's awesome. Totally, totally. Look for easy ways of getting at this information. Like It doesn't (laughs) need to be hard. And then build software tools around that, right, to make it easy for people to accept. So we could, you know, like right now we could find out what the hourly emissions intensity of your grid is and how much energy you're using in your home and get that answer. And we could do that for any building in the United States in real time on demand. And so that's like really important kind of table stakes for doing this at all. But from there, what do you do with that? What do you do with that information? My favorite quote, it freaks out venture capitalists every time I say this out loud, but comes from Karl Marx. I'm a political scientist, but you know, a good old, you know, lefty Marxist back in the day. And on his tombstone, he's buried in London. It says, the job of philosophers has always been to interpret the world. The point, however, is to change it. And this is sort of like how I think about things, right? It's like, we can get this data, we can understand what's going on, but if that's all we do, we're missing the point. So how do we actually change the world? And and the work that we did at Recurve and that I had done a little bit, you know, with Meter Hero prior to that is to think about how can we turn this into a market? Like, can we have a market for the environmental attributes associated with a decarbonization project? And if we can transact that, if that's valued as a thing in and of itself, that can be what drives 
it's going to take somewhere between 10 and $100 trillion of new capital to decarbonize buildings in North America. So how do we unlock that capital that's necessary to achieve that goal? Well, by making the environmental attribute itself valuable. So companies all around the world right now are buying carbon offsets from nature projects or from any number of you know direct air capture, but they're sort of ignoring the elephant in the room, which is that there's a specific place that these emissions are coming from that we could decarbonize without a ton of work. It doesn't require any new technology or anything really to decarbonize buildings. We just need to put the capital there. So instead of buying carbon offsets from trees, buy carbon offsets from building decarbonization projects and you kill two birds with one stone. Maybe not a great metaphor, but you solve two problems at once, right? You mitigate your own emissions as a conscientious inhabitant of the earth and you stop emissions from happening. So, you know, instead of closing the the barn doors after the horses have escaped, you actually keep the emissions from happening in the first place, which is a far more powerful approach to addressing climate change. Yeah, it's a proactive as opposed to an avoidance, right? I mean, it is an avoidance, but it's avoidance before the emissions are up there. Exactly, exactly. Help me understand the state of that today. So today, there are a number of companies out there building electrification, and they are today able or unable to utilize carbon credits as part of their toolkit? Generally unable, and not for the lack of trying. You know, there's folks, maybe I won't name any specific names, but we hear stories about going to Vera or Gold Standard or these carbon registries. These are companies that are helping buildings install heat pumps, put on solar panels, do window retrofits. You name your building decarbonization sort of toolkit of choice, right? Yep. And so Vera tells them to First of all, to, to get in line, it's going to be a couple of years and to pay them a lot of money to certify the carbon offsets from a project. So these projects on, on a project by project basis. Project, yeah. yeah. And so it just doesn't work for the built environment. And these are nature scientists. So they, they are not experts in measurement and verification of energy, for example. So their concepts are you know sort of like awkwardly imposed on the built environment. So today, if you're a decarbonization company that's out there doing these projects, you have you know basically two kind of like value propositions. One is that you might save money on somebody's bills, although that's not always true if it's an electrification project. Sometimes the bills go up. Or number two is you might be able to arbitrage energy markets. Right. So a company that does demand response, for example, might be able to bid into an energy market to get paid for that. But you're getting paid in both cases on the fossil fuel value of your energy and not the clean energy value of your energy. And if we're going to value clean energy in and of itself, we need a way to be able to calculate that and turn that into itself a tradable instrument. Similar to like how we've done with solar and wind, where there's RECs associated with that. That's the you know, environmental attribute associated with the production of clean energy. But today it's limited to that world of wind and solar production, when really we should be thinking about distributed energy resources, buildings, heat pumps, batteries, solar panels, all of the things that constitute our consumption of energy as connected together as part of the holistic solution for decarbonizing a grid. And so the environmental attributes from acting on any of those should be available to us to transact around. The heat pump isn't a producer of energy, right? A heat pump is a more granularly controllable consumer of energy and one that uses a lot less energy than, and presumably no fossil energy relative to your traditional HVAC, for example. Yeah, true. I mean, so it avoids, you know, if you had a gas furnace, right, that was combusting natural or fuel oil, you know, in many cases, and so you switch to a heat pump, you're avoiding the emissions associated with a traditional natural gas. Now you're, you've got some emissions that you're newly having to attribute to because you're using electricity from the grid. And so that's a thing that you have to account for, right? So as you do the measurement and verification of these projects, not only do you get credit for the replacement of what was there before, but you also in some cases have to account for the increase, just like electric vehicle charging, for example, or you you can think of lots of other examples. And I think that's part of the richness of what we're trying to uncover here is that it doesn't need to be 
confusing or black box or whatever. Like these are actual knowable values that it's fairly easy to account for. And if we do so in an open and transparent and auditable way, it gives us tremendous leverage to go out and do these projects, not just on a one-off basis, but at scale, because we're confident that we're getting the value out of it that we're expecting. And, you know, I see on your website, you're working with a number of the sort of, I will call them new energy retailers or sort of companies that are helping to manage these demand response type of use cases. How do you work with those types of companies in this environment? They're sort of the critical piece. And part of the reason for that, this is one of the things that's different from Meter Hero versus today that I owe my time at Recurve a lot of credit for, which is the importance of the, what we would call the project developer, the company that's doing the work. So if I came to you, Cody, and I said, hey, I've got some free money for you if you put in a heat pump, you're going to be like, cool, sign me up. I've drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, like I'm into it. But it's also likely the fact that you would do it anyway, right? And so when you approach the individual with an offer, you're going to end up with a self-selection bias where you get basically free ridership. And this is a big problem with rebate programs generally. And the better way of approaching it is to not approach you, but to approach your HVAC contractor and to say, hey, there's some free money here. If you can convince Cody and all of the rest of your customers to not put in a natural gas furnace, but to put in a heat pump instead. Now, the primary barrier that we have to actually like electrification generally is the reticence of our contractors to go out and and do the extra work required to put in these new types of equipment. And so by pointing the incentive at them for the amount of carbon that they're able to reduce, all of a sudden it aligns the incentives generally, right? So that they're going to you and saying, hey, you don't want to do that gas furnace. You want to do one of these heat pumps because I'm getting paid a little extra for that. And and the person who's funding this, right, who's looking for a way to mitigate their emissions is not just funding people who would have already done it otherwise, but in fact are funding the people who would be least likely to do it because that contractor now is, is going out and seeking the people who would otherwise be doing natural gas and trying to get them to do the heat pump instead. So these new energy companies are part of that vanguard of transitioning the entire market, right? So in, so what ideally, as they become more successful, they have the nicest trucks and the best trained staff and the best customer experience because they're able to be rewarded financially for the environmental benefits of the work that they're doing. Because they make money when the grid uses less energy, they have brokered to other places and they're taking a cut over that. So the more of that sort of efficient use of these distributed energy resources that exist, the richer these companies become and it enables their lead gen engine to go fund more folks at the front end to switch over to distributed energy resources from traditional fossil fuel based building resources. Is that the the sort of network effect here that you're tapping into? The virtuous cycle. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you are then out there helping these projects to go in because you can allow them to claim a carbon credit for the hourly based carbon savings that these projects are resulting in. Yes, that's right. So if you take a even something as kind of simple as demand response, a company like Leap, for example, that we work with, you know, they're typically bidding into the market only when the price of electricity gets high enough. And so there's a lot of times on a regular day when the evening hits and we fire up our gas, you know, peaker plants, but it never gets quite expensive enough to justify demand response being called. But that's still really dirty, you know, fossil fuel power that's being used every night and the utilities are fine with it, the grid operator is fine with it, everybody's fine with it except for the planet. So what we're saying to Leap is like, hey, there's a little bit of an extra incentive here for bidding in and come in at a lower price. And so instead of at $100 a megawatt hour, maybe we can bid in at $70 a megawatt hour. And now we double the amount of time that demand response can participate in the market because that clearing price required for it to participate is now lower than it would have been. And we're able to compete more directly against fossil fuels, not just on the basis of the energy price, but also on the value of the emissions reduction associated with that. 
This is the theoretical impact you're able to have, or you're able to do this now? Because you said the credits don't yet exist, right? But you're working to make them able to exist? They are able to exist now. So we're actually doing this now. And, and Leaf is, you know, one of our early participants in this. Who's on the other end of those credits? I mean, you don't have to say the specific names, but what kind of orgs are on the other end of those credits than like buying the, essentially the avoided emissions credit in this case? Yeah, so... Any organization that has a net zero goal is a good candidate to buy this. So if you're buying carbon offsets today, say from tree projects, and you're kind of going, I don't really know how much of an impact that's having. I'd like to have more direct impact in my community or more transparent measurement verification around that. What we're doing is an alternative to the traditional carbon credits that organizations typically buy today. So our community are those who are care deeply about building decarbonization. Yeah, so makes sense. You don't so care about buildings, you probably don't care about what we're doing. But property just, management companies, large retailers, like folks like that, most likely, I'm guessing. Yep. Yep. All the building nerds out there who go, okay, yes, we want to do more of this. That's the And so they can come to you today. You can issue them credits. This isn't going through Vera. Like you are the credit supplier of these credits today and the verifier, I'm guessing. You can issue them these credits that they can buy where they're, they can take an offset essentially or a credit for some other building being incentivized to switch to a, a heat pump or a distributed energy resource, and you're accounting on an hourly basis for the net savings from a carbon perspective, that credit is going to this credit buyer, which then I'm guessing on the project side helps defray the installation costs of the equipment in the first place. Yes, exactly. So these credits are being bought ahead of time so that the project developer can go to the customer with a lower priced offer. Right. So instead of 200 grand for this industrial heat pump installation, it's 125 grand. For example, exactly. I don't know if those prices are anywhere in the right ballpark, but. But this meets the criteria of additionality, which is really important in the carbon offset world is you don't want to be funding projects that would have happened otherwise. So if they've already happened kind of by definition, they would have happened otherwise. So these are trying to identify those projects that just need that little extra bit to get them across the finish line, to make it pencil out, to meet that ROI need. And then again, sort of on the margins, being able to you know double the volume of demand response of electrification of renewable energy development that's going in the ground because our pricing looks just a little bit better than it did before. And how are you seeing, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about regulations in New York, like Local Law 97, that are starting to penalize building owners for their carbon footprints. Are you seeing certain geos where regulatory environments are accelerating demand for these types of solutions? I think the accelerant from the IRA is probably more impactful thus far vis-a-vis the sticks that are, that are out there. So carrot versus stick. Interesting. Yeah. In New York, a lot of the property management companies are looking at how to get around the fines that they're facing as opposed to like doing the hard work that needs to happen. There's this one of the, I think, key insights here that everybody should take away is that buildings are complicated. These projects are hard, they're expensive, and capital budgets are constrained. And so when we're going at these one at a time where I have to take responsibility for my project in my building it's a very inefficient use of capital that way. And, and so this is where I'm a big fan of kind of concepts like cap and trade, for example. So you could take one building in downtown Manhattan, for example, that's like really hard to decarbonize and say to it, well, you could pay that $260 a ton penalty, or you could pay, say, $200 a ton and decarbonize 50 buildings, you know, elsewhere in New York City and improve the quality of the building the efficiency of the building, lower the bills for the customers in those buildings. And so we like to think about this in terms of a kind of like the Dutch did, you know, like if you think about like the old, the origins of the stock market, right? The Dutch East India Company, you know, kind of socialized a lot of the risks of going out and exploring the world, bringing back stolen stuff from, you know, the far flung corners of the world, rather than funding individual expeditions, Right. The Dutch said, hey, we're going to do this collectively. And then as uh, some ships are going to sink and some are going to come back loaded and, and whatnot, and we'll divvy up the benefits. 
Today, we spend a lot of time focusing on decarbonizing individual buildings and underwriting individual specific projects. And a more efficient use of our capital is to deploy it broadly across portfolios of buildings, try to find the lowest hanging fruit first. We're in a race right now against global warming, right? And so the faster that we can deploy this stuff, maybe not like hitting the giantest skyscraper first, because that one's gonna be really hard, but hitting 50 other buildings might actually be a better way of going about and doing this. I assume also in the commercial building space, one of the things that's maybe unspoken for any of us who don't work in commercial real estate is the fact that these buildings are generating profit from tenants, from rent. You know, if you're decarbonizing your house, you can choose when you want to do your project to, you know, flip out your heat pump and it'll be inconvenient for, you know, a week or two while your house is under construction, but it's your choice. If you're operating a building that has thousands and thousands of tenants and those tenants themselves are other companies and small businesses and whatnot, you can't necessarily just decide to swap out the HVAC of a building whenever you want to. And so I think your point about, hey, maybe you can't decarbonize your own building today, but you can get credit for helping to support the decarbonization of others also presumably factors into that timing issue with respect to when a building is occupied or not. Exactly. We call this one click to net zero. So every single organization should be able to be net zero today. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't have emissions anymore and that you don't have to get rid of those emissions at some point. And as long as you are net zero, you're kind of paying a tax, you know, self-imposed tax for your emissions. But that quote unquote tax money is going directly into decarbonizing other buildings at the same pace as your emissions themselves. So you have that mitigation factor, right? That to me is respectful of the fact that there are these capital cycles. There are in large commercial buildings, it's very disruptive to go and to decarbonize them, but there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there that we could be tackling today. And a lot of it is in disadvantaged communities that don't have their own resources, that don't have the capital available to do the work. And so if we can marshal some of that, even if it comes at the expense of decarbonizing a downtown skyscraper right away, the positive impact that we can have in these other neighboring communities can be equally or greater than that. And so for you, I would guess the ideal customer type would be head of sustainability, someone who has some budgetary control over that organization's net zero roadmap and can choose or help heavily influence where the company decides to deploy investment capital into hitting net zero. And so making that choice of do I invest in my owned and operated building portfolio or do I invest outside of my portfolio for now until my portfolio can be ready to absorb that change. Exactly. And one of the great things about that is is some of the storytelling that comes along with it, right? So when you have your ESG report and you talk about, you know, what have you done to be able to point to the local community and say, hey, we helped to fund solar panels and storage in this neighborhood, or hey, we helped to install heat pumps in this neighborhood, or, you know, these are real impacts in real communities that as kind of the, that double bottom line, as it were, that really is part of what we're doing. We're trying to create a better world for ourselves and for our children, a more equitable world, a more just world, and an environmentally speaking, a more sustainable world. And so thinking about this, not just in terms of like the energy benefits, but in terms of the broader social and environmental impacts of the work really does kind of resonate within that broader concept of what ESG really should stand for. Well, McGee, thanks for explaining all of that and helping me understand more about what you're building at Watt Carbon and how it fits into the bigger picture here. Where are you today? I think you you all have recently raised some financing, maybe share a bit more about the the history of, of the company itself. So we're coming on two years old. Now we'll be two years old in, in August. So we've raised a couple of rounds of capital pre-seed and a seed round. The most recent seed round we closed in November led by Crew Ventures, which is an amazing venture capital firm, as well as a, a number of great climate-specific investors, Green Soil Prop Tech Ventures, Tommy Leap at Jetstream, and Duane at Village Global has been there from the very beginning. So Adam Besvenik at Looking Glass, you know, there's this amazing ecosystem of investors and investment companies that are helping people like me, you know, kind of realize these visions. So we're really excited to be part of that and, you know, really look forward to the coming years ahead. And where do you need help for folks who are listening? <laughs> it's not really about us. You know, the way that we think about this is that we're providing tools to help people save the planet. And so what we want 
are for people to continue to do what they're doing, to put the time and energy into understanding their own carbon footprints, to understand ways of mitigating it. If the built environment, if building decarbonization is a thing for you, we are the place for you to get involved and to be excited about that work and to help you do that work better. So, you know, we'd love to just kind of talk and collaborate with folks who are in this space. It's going to take a lot of us. Again, it's it's 40% of annual carbon emissions. And so it's not going to be a quick and easy thing. But if we can do it, if we can do it right, if we can do it effectively, we really can make a big dent in the climate change arc that's now awaiting us. I have one other question for you, which I forgot to ask, which is you told me you spent the last week at the Clean Energy Buyers Association. What did you learn? What were the big takeaways? What was being discussed right now? What I was surprised by was how many people are still kind of like just dipping their toes into this world. You know, you and I live this day in and day out, right? So we sort of take for granted a lot of the terms. And we hosted a little bit of a discussion section and folks were kind of coming in just going, hey, we're new to all this. We don't really know how to get started. And But our organization has made a commitment and me and my team of three or team of one has been deputized to like go out and figure it out. And and they don't know really where to start. And so I think to me, it was exciting, but also it was a good reminder that we can't get too far ahead of ourselves. We can't get too far over our own skis. We can't be too sophisticated too quickly for the folks that are just entering their climate journey themselves. And to make sure that I saw a couple of instances of people talking down to some of the new people and be like, oh, you're using the wrong words. So you're like, you're not net zero, you're like net whatever. And, and I think that they're trying, they're showing up and they've raised their hand, they've volunteered and they want to be part of the positive difference in the world. And, and for us who've been in this for a while, who maybe have some deeper understanding, it's the worst possible thing we can do to be above them and to talk past them. And really, we need to meet them where they are, because those are the people that are going to be critical to winning this fight. That's such a good reminder. Well, McGee, I'm so grateful for you to come on today, having shared more about what you're building at Watt Carbon. And best of luck to you. And thanks for doing all the work you're doing. Thanks, Cody. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, We're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.